What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today, uh, my guest is Carol Hayes Collier. Carol is an elder. She's a psychiatric survivor and one of the founders of the Transitional Living Services of Onondaga, New York. She was a supervisor of the Foster Grandparents Program in Syracuse and is a longtime member of the Gray Panthers. Carol is an advocate for elders' rights and for many years has been a leading activist around mental health issues and elders. So, Carol, thank you so much for joining us on Madness Radio today. My pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, now I have to say this is a really, really important um, topic, and I'm very inspired by your work, um, many years working for elders' rights around mental health, and it's a topic that isn't talked about enough, the situation as we're going to be discussing with um, nursing homes and the treatment of elders is is appalling in the United States, and we're going to be getting into that and into especially the mental health dimensions of what is really a nationwide crisis with our elders. So maybe you could just start us off by, by telling us your own personal story of how you got interested in becoming an elder activist and also your experience uh, with the mental health system yourself, because I know you're, you're a psychiatric survivor. When I was 19, I was incarcerated in a psychiatric private hospital for four months, and after much study, they decided that I was hopeless and helpless and needed 24-hour supervision to live the rest of my life and needed to be in total care in a state psychiatric center. So they shipped me overnight to a state psychiatric center. What was going on when they when they put you in the, in the hospital like that? I was depressed. I was in my second year of college um, and my 15th year of Catholic education and pretty depressed and self-loathing in those days, confused and just down. And so I attempted suicide. They put me in the hospital and I kept, as they said, getting worse and worse. I have seen my records and everything I thought that they were saying about me, they were saying about me. It wasn't paranoia. It was just heightened awareness. So then they decided that they had tried every possible way to help me, but I could not in any way survive out in the community, and I could not have a personal relationship with anyone. I could not do any kind of activities that were not totally controlled. So they said, okay, they shipped me to Binghamton Psychiatric Center, uh, actually for the rest of my life. Wow, and this was decided when you you were 19 or 20? 19. Wow. And you must, did you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or like clinical depression with psychosis or something like that? When we look back at the diagnoses, there were all the different diagnoses from depression, schizophrenia, then manic depression. Um, And so it was just like a hodgepodge over the years that they just kept adding new ones, you know, and finding different things wrong with me. So when they sent me to Binghamton, they, they gave me different jobs. They gave me testing through the vocational rehabilitation, Um, and one of the tests was to see if I could work in human services, and so my job was to assist elders who were in bed. They didn't let the elders out of bed. The beds were really close together in those days, and you would turn an, an elderly person, and you would change their sheets, and then you would roll them back. Now, 
I, I grew up in a very respectful world, and I would never think of touching someone's body without speaking to them. But um, after many days of trying to get me to do this right, I realized that a lot of the people who were there, their limbs were, they had, several had had their limbs amputated because they were left for so long in their feces and urine. Oh, my God. Um, and that was not an unusual thing in the 70s and, and early 80s, late 60s, 70s, and early 80s for um, people in psychiatric hospitals because they were just left in their beds and the urine would eat away at their skin until they needed an um, amputation. So, but I would speak to each person as I went up to them and finally they decided they pulled me off that, that test job because I was unable to complete my task following the rules, which was to not speak to anybody. Well, you were bringing some humanity to that to that job, and that's that was wasn't wasn't considered doing the job well. Wow. Absolutely, or at all, I was not an, a candidate to even go on any training to do a job in personal mm. care. So this was these were these were in the days of the long term asylums and state hospitals, and you were really yeah. considered like a lifelong patient. You were just they had just get, given up on you, and so they gave you this job and that really that was sort of the beginning of your awakening to the way in which elders are treated by the system yes that was the first time because our the elders in our family were respected but it it came very clear to me as i got in there what happened as you got older and i watched an elderly woman in what they call a jerry chair which is just another name for a locked in chair they they had her arms tied down to the chair and they had a table in front of the chair that slides on and stays there and so she was tied down so well and she had a white yellow hair and they tied them in stupid looking ribbons you know paper ribbons to make them look like pigtails and she was an elderly woman and they were shoving food in her mouth and she actually the the person who was feeding her and shoving food in her mouth got close enough to her that she could get her hand free and she, you know, grabbed the woman with her hand. Did nothing of any harm, but boy, that woman just hauled off and slapped her. And, you know, we just, you just sit there and witness that, you know. It's, you know, he'd say no, and, and I had my consequences for standing up and saying anything. And uh, it, was, it was not an unusual situation that, you know, people who were not cooperative were, were dealt with. I fully expected that was the rest of my life. They told me that, you know. In that particular hospital, I never was discharged. I actually left by accident. I went out with my uncle and I said, well, they told me that I would get out the middle of next week. So I thought that that was a Wednesday. So I picked two Wednesdays and my uncle came the first time and then the second time to give me a ride home. They said, oh, no way you're getting out of here. And I said, okay, well, can I go for the day? And then I just hid at home. And because I was in a different town than the institution, they didn't come after me. So I stayed in a closet for a few days to stay down, and my mother didn't turn me in. You know, I just was careful. You sort of got out through a bureaucratic loophole, it sounds like. Yes. I I learned later that I had had trouble taking showers, and that was because in growing up Catholic, you'd never undressed in front of other people. And so they decided that they weren't going to take that anymore. So they stripped me and showered me with everybody having to be in the shower room and just humiliated me as much as they could. And 
for five or ten years after that experience, I did many presentations publicly for the Mental Patients Liberation Project, and I would tell that story of this horrible thing happening to this woman, and it wasn't until my sister had said to me, but you had trouble taking a bath, didn't they have to help you with that? And all of a sudden it came very clear in my mind, I wasn't talking about anyone other than myself, but it was so horrifying I never related to it. So you were so traumatized that you actually dissociated and treated it like it was happening to someone else. Yes, and I really believed that for years. And uh, But when it came full blast, I did understand that that was me, and gratefully I was far enough away not to completely blow apart with terror. They would march nurses um, through the wards, and they would point out, that's our schizophrenic, that's our paranoid, that's our manic depressive, you know, and they, they'd point out who everybody was, and I, I you know, it was just like this unbelievable change of who I was, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a student, so I'm, I'm writing notes about, you know, what this, this is a different social structure than I ever knew, so I'm writing notes about what's going on here, that there's a power thing, and just from sophomore sociology, you know, and the nurse saw me with a pen writing, and she's came over and asked what I was doing and then told me to put down my pen and have everybody come around me. And then she took my paper and she said, as I'm ripping this up, say after me, I am a mental patient. I am not a student. I am not studying you. I am with you. I am a mental patient just like the rest of you. And from that point on, I only had toilet paper. That was all I ever was given. I wasn't allowed to have other paper. So that, that whole thing was a complete nightmare, and, and I escaped by accident. I wasn't in any way con- confrontive. You know, I was scared to death. And what was the name of this institution, and what year was this again? Remind us. Binghamton Psychiatric Center in um, 1968, April. And then I, you know, I went back to, decided to go back to school part-time, and, uh, and the junior college had a great experience. So when you were in the hospital, you were actually doing fine, but you had been labeled and so viewed as a mental patient, and your records just said, oh, keep her here forever, that they weren't paying any attention at all to how you were actually doing. They were just going to keep you there and, and interpret everything you did, like taking notes or writing in a journal, as symptoms of your illness. Yes. So I tried to get off the ward. I did get off the ward, you know, with with guards and went to church, which I really needed to do because I was very much into Catholicism. And I ended up being refused communion. At that point, I thought, oh, my God, you know, my life is completely over. I saw the priest later and I said, what what did I do? And he said, you sinned and you didn't confess it because he read the records and learned that I had attempted suicide once again at the other hospital before they sent me to Binghamton. And so it was like, you know, it just is the most horrible feeling to not only feel bad about yourself, scared to death that this is your this is your life, and then find out that even God, your hope in God is gone. You know, it's just been taken from me. Wow, because the priest was given the freedom to just look at your psychiatric records. Oh, yeah. It's such a horrible story, Carol. I'm so glad that you're here with us now and you made it through this. So you really didn't have any of the kind of grave, serious psychiatric illness problems that they claimed that you did. Your real problem was that you were locked up in this horrible hospital. Yeah, and scared to death. 
So, I, you know, when I left, uh, eventually, I, when I finished my bachelor's degree, Syracuse University turned me down from going there in 1971 because they saw my psychiatric records. But I, you know, I, I was never, I never lied about it. I never had any reason. I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong as far as I was concerned. I just did what I did. So I never lied about it, never tried to hide it. And I was often called crazy for not, not trying to hide it. But I did, um, I was held up in a, at Syracuse University, and I'd also been in another hospital before Syracuse University, and um, they said that I couldn't go there, but then they offered me a sanity hearing in 1971 where their psychiatrist that was connected with SU would talk with my psychiatrist. But poor people don't have psychiatrists that work with them. Poor people have therapists that work with them and psychiatrists who prescribe for them. And that's still true today. So they wouldn't take a therapist's word. They would only take the psychiatrist's word. And the psychiatrist said he didn't know me. So they didn't let you go to Syracuse University because you couldn't afford getting a psychiatrist to defend you in the sanity hearing that they offered you. And so they said, well, you're mentally ill and so you can't, you can't come here. Right. Um, so you went. So you went on. And you finally did get your bachelor's. So Carol, when did your um, inspiration really become ignited to focus on elder issues and to work with reforming the system around um, elders and mental health? Okay, that was um, when I um, started working for the foster grandparent program, where I would work with 60 elders who had to be at least 60 years old and very poor. And they would get a stipend to work with two different kids with disabilities. And the model for the program was generally that they would do nurturing, caring things with the kids, you know, in institutions. But because of my training and my background and the intent of the program locally, we actually decided to become advocates. And through my connections with the foster grandparents, um, I met many people who had had psychiatric histories um, seeing the great panthers in those days and the actions that they did really clarified for me that this needed to be different because these foster grandparents were just from a whole wide range of backgrounds, but they were just so clear on being powerful influences in people's lives, and they wanted to live in the community. They did not want to live you know, I never have met a person who says, oh, great, I can't wait till I get old and get to move to a nursing home. So at that time, I was also president of the Mental Health Association, and we planned, with the help of the foster grandparents, we planned an alternative to, to high-rises, because a lot of the foster grandparents were faced with losing their homes and having to move into high-rises. And one person described it as it looks like a bunch of you know, like a mausoleum with people stacked on top of people, you know. So she said, I really don't want to go there because every time I go in that building, everyone knows that I'm there. They announce me. I can't go see my friend without being, you know, everyone knowing it. There's always people sitting by the elevator. So I don't want a high rise. So we got an architect to design a place where people could have air, earth, fire, and water so it was Mental Health and the Elderly was the name of the um, conference we were putting on, and everybody just got really excited about how you can have safety and community inclusion, involvement, 
you know, from not a high-rise only, that you can have alternatives. What are the alternatives? And he did some incredible, you know, architectural drawings and was there doing workshops. But even when the the Office on Aging learned about what we were doing, it was considered heresy. So they would not allow any of their staff to attend the conference because it would be wrong to think that anybody wanted anything more than more high-rises. And this is when you became involved with the Grey Panthers. Tell us, for people who don't know about the Grey Panthers, tell us about that. The Grey Panthers, when I encountered them through one of the foster grandparents who was a political activist, they were working pretty much through Maggie Kuhn was the head, and she was an elder woman who saw the connection of all the social justice issues, from psychiatric survivors to people with disabilities to elders to blacks to minorities to poor people. She just saw all the connections. So I met her at a national demonstration, a peace demonstration. So she saw peace as as an issue too and, you know, demanded the right to live a life in the community in spite of the alternatives that people were giving, which were pretty dismal. And they took their name from the Black Panthers. You betcha. The activism was based on the Black Panthers were focused originally on social justice and started things like breakfast programs for kids. And the, and the Grey Panthers took the same kind of model of meeting basic needs as an important thing, but also the basic needs of where a person feels valued and, and can live in a place where they're respected and not in a nursing home, not in, a, in an institution. So, Carol, help us to understand what is the situation with elders in the United States today because we're still facing this reliance on nursing homes and it's a really terrible situation. If you go into a nursing home, you can be inspecting nursing homes till the day you die, but they can change with one staff person changing. One person can come in and make your life miserable. You have no control over when you get up. You have no control over when you eat. You have no control over anything. And what I've become most sensitive to lately is when we say a person is in need of a higher level of care, all we're saying is the person is in need of less power over their own lives. And in nursing homes, they can make them real pretty, real real slick, but it still all depends on the control of the staff and your cooperation. So if you go into a nursing home and you've had a psychiatric history, um, one of my friends is a relief nurse in a nursing home, and she was there when someone was admitted. And the head nurse said, well, we'll teach this person right away who's in charge because these mental patients move in here and they think they've got rights, but we have to straighten them out. That was, unfortunately, it was a very true statement. But the nursing homes, you know, I was, I was, chided for not wearing my bib. I said, I'm not wearing the bib. If I spill something on my clothes, I'll send them home to be washed. And they said, well, you've got to wear a bib. You know, I mean, everybody wears a bib. And I, you know, so I became the bib fanatic, you know, that I wouldn't wear my bib. But they put it there every single night to make sure that I had to make that choice every night, you know, and be a pain in the neck every night. And I also talked with people, I talked with this woman who was in her 90s who said, I have such great fear because even the things that are put there to protect us 
can damage us. And I'll give you a good example. You're in a single bed, and think about in your life, when was the last time you were in a single bed other than in a hospital? But in a nursing home, you're in a single bed. So if you're used to having a, a full bed or a queen size or king size, forget it. So what they've done is they put, you know, they'll put these guardrails on the side. But the feds realized that that was what they were doing to control people. They were, you know, putting people in their cages, essentially. So they they said, nope, nursing homes, you can't do that anymore. So this is kind of a good example of when you've got a policy to protect people, it can become a horror because this woman had to get up in the night and be changed in her bed. And she said, if I could just have the guardrails to hang on to, then I would feel safer. She said, but every single night, the nurse, the, the two people who change her say, don't worry, we're not going to drop her, drop you. But she's a large woman. And she said, I'm just afraid. And so she said, I could never go back to sleep because I'm just so nervous by that time. You know, when they changed me, they're very nice and all this kind of stuff. But I said, well, why don't you ask to have guardrails? And she said, oh, no, they're against the law here. And I said, no, they're against the rules to have them unless you have a doctor that agrees or that you can have them. And she said, well, I asked, and and the doctor did say that I, I could have my rails to hang on to so I would feel safer but they never got them, and I, I don't want to keep bothering them about them. But So she lived every single night in fear that she was going to fall off the bed, you know. And I was, as soon as I got in there, I said I wanted guardrails on either side so that I could control when I got up to a sitting position, you know. But it's, it's things that were supposed to protect you that ended up being absolutely ridiculous. I had a roommate of a woman who was a nurse, a beautiful, sweet little woman, and we had the curtains arranged. She couldn't hear well, so she didn't want to see a TV, and she just had her TV turned off. They turned my TV on, and I was watching something, but we had this agreement. You know, we'll just keep this so that you don't have to see it. And, and there was a certain way you could have the curtain that she didn't have to see it. So the nurse came in, and she pulled the curtain back, and she said, no, no, you've got to have the curtain open. You know, you have a right to see your own TV. It's none of her business. And I said, no, we, we have this agreement. I said, pull the curtain back to where it was. I don't want her to see my TV. And it was like, it didn't make any difference. You know, I, I had to wait until the next shift to get somebody because I couldn't move it myself. Mm-hmm. So then we finally started talking. She realized that either I was a troublemaker or I was a kindred spirit. And so she said, if I could only get them to answer my bell, I, could, I wouldn't have to wet my pants. She said, but they won't because they, their rule is that they come around and check you for incontinence, then they change you. And boy, I, I can't even tell you how loud one of those depends can sound when there's an unhappy staff person, you know, mm. across the room that crackle, you know. So it was like, oh, you're wet again, you know, yelling at her. And it's like so humiliating, you know, so horrifying. So there are all these arbitrary rules and policies that on paper are supposed to protect people, but actually they are dehumanizing and humiliating people. Yeah. And I, I was accidentally, the, the abuse that I underwent was they just came in, pulled, I was sound asleep, they pulled the covers off me, and two of them, you know, were, were searching around in my crotch, and I'm, you know, I'm freaking out, and I 
asked them, what are they doing? What are they doing? They're saying, be quiet. And then they said, well, she's dry. And they pulled the curtains up and or pulled the covers back up and just walked out. Never said a thing to me. So then when I told Medicaid, they said, okay, they'll repeat to everybody what their rights are. Someone has a right for someone to wake them up gently. (laughs) Give me a break. That does not happen. You know, so the same thing with food. And one place it was like they decided I could have anything to eat, but I couldn't have ketchup. I don't know what, you know, if it had sugar or what what the nutritional thing was. But I said, they're ketchup Nazis. You know, I want a ketchup. I want, why would you have a burger without a ketchup? And uh, so I had to steal some ketchup and stuff it in my drawer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're unbelievable. And then other, other nursing homes, I have a friend who has a psychiatric issue and they will give him four or five, six, they're killing him because they'll, they'll just fill him with all kinds of food and, you know, give him all these sweets that are, are literally killing him. If they've got someone who's making a lot of noise, they will make sure that they get quieted down. And it's usually with a shot. And that's how they get people out of a... As soon as you can prove in a psychiatric center that a person doesn't need anything, like, talkable, only needs drugs, then the person is, quote, cured from the psychiatric system and they can go to a nursing home. And there's nothing in between. Even though there there are alternatives in between, they just don't think of that because they think we can't manage our lives. So this is a huge issue, the number of people who are being just dumped from mental health facilities um, that are often don't have the resources being dumped in nursing homes. And you're saying that it's really a question of, of control. When someone is controlled and stabilized, so-called, on medication, which is essentially just tranquilizers, they're basically just knocking people out, Yep. then that's when they can go into these nursing homes where they are essentially warehoused and kept quiet with shots or pills, and these are powerful antipsychotics. They're not treatments for Alzheimer's or dementia or any kind of real problem associated with aging. They are just about social control. And they're also contraindicated in a lot of situations where they say don't give this to an elder person because it's dangerous to their to their ability to walk, to their ability to have stable physical stamina. And the, the numbers of people who are dying from the side effects of these medications, thousands and thousands of people, and it's, it's something like 65% of all of the um, residents in nursing homes in the United States are on some kind of psychiatric medication, mostly antipsychotics, and those are not people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or psychosis. This is just prescriptions that are given off-label to control people. And, and and so that's this is a, a huge issue. We're also seeing this in the foster care um, system with children. But essentially, the drugging is to keep people quiet and, and 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 under control. And the drugging also is, you know, the whole profit making of the drug companies. One of my friends had worked for a drug company and said they no longer have to, you know, put a lot of advertising into psychotropic drugs because. All they have to do is tell a NAMI group that there's a new miracle drug that's going to fix your kid's brain, and they give it to them. And also with kids, uh, we had a case recently where a family, a mother was threatened to lose her. She had two children. One child, they wanted the teacher wanted the child on psychotropic drugs. She didn't want her child on psychotropic drugs, so 
they were going to take the other child out of the house because the mother was being negligent by not giving her first child psychotropic drugs. And you consider this starting at the age of three, there's not going to be brains and elders before long, you know, because the damage to growing brains is is not known, but it's, you know, you just think about it, you know it's it's not a good thing. We've never put so many drugs in so many kids' brains, and and they give you the, the depression test at grades four and eight, you know, so they're not going to live till they're elders. You know, we die, and then, then they blame us and say, you know, our blood pressure is up and we're not exercising enough and, you know, all this wellness kind of stuff. It's like, well, if they stopped making us take the drugs that cause those things, maybe we wouldn't have quite such a problem. But the drug companies have won out, and unfortunately, they're they're making a huge profit on us. Yeah, and there was a uh, the other kinds of abuses as well. We mentioned some of these, but in addition to the over over drugging, there was the report in two thousand and eight said that that ninety four percent of nursing homes in the United States had health and safety violations, and about seventeen percent of all nursing homes in the United States had some kind of violation or deficiency that actually caused a threat of immediate harm to, to the patients that were there. So we're talking about a systematic, institutionalized abuse that's happening to our elders in the nursing home system. And they watch every single year that once flu season hits, they clear out a lot of beds because a lot of people die because they don't get decent care. Unbelievable you know, that you're you're at high risk when the flu's out there because it goes through a nursing home and you've got any fragile aspects of your health, then you're going to, you're very possibly going to die. And that's, that's how they used to do it in psychiatric centers. You know, it was like, keep everybody together who's sick and, you know, they'll go. So they just accept the death rate um, being higher in nursing homes because people are, are concentrated and there's so much illness. And then that just becomes really functional to the system because you just kind of get rid of people that you don't have anything else to do with. And that, that's even how they, how they allocate a lot of elder housing. A lot of the high-rises only have openings because someone died. And what are some of the other problems that are going on in, in nursing homes? I know that being in a nursing home itself is, is a predictor of an earlier death when people are, are living at home. They live longer. Being in nursing homes, statistically, people will die sooner just from being in, in the nursing home. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Carol Hayes Collier. Uh, she is an elder and psychiatric survivor and one of the founders of Transitional Living Services of Onondaga, New York. She was a supervisor of the Foster Grandparents Program and is a longtime member of the Gray Panthers. Carol is an advocate for elders' rights in the mental health system and a longtime activist. You're listening to KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland, Oregon. It, it scares me when there's not a lot of visitors around because that's one of the safeguards is when there are visitors around and they see what happens. And the other part is they have to think, is there something wrong with this picture? They have to see that something's wrong because when that woman who was next to me, I talked to her son, he said, but I'm scared to say anything because she's not going to be here that long. She died there, um, you know, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So even though he was an upstanding citizen right in that small town where the nursing home was, he was terrified of complaining about them not responding to her bell 
And one night she almost choked to death. She was coughing and coughing and I couldn't get out of my bed, but I could with a reacher get her call bell. So I'm pushing my call bell. She's pushing hers. I can see him flashing. I can hear him flashing. And when the aide finally came into the room, she said, I just need to let you know that the nurse has been standing outside your door for the whole time getting meds prepped. Just ignored her choking and, and it was, I was scared for her. You know, I could get the water to her and she got some water in, but she dropped it. You know, she was, she was high risk. And I don't know what she died of, but I'm sure nobody questioned it. And, and that just happens all the time. What are some of the mental health dimensions of this? We talked a little bit about the psychiatric uh, drugging for, for social control. Yeah, they have um, psychologists that go around and observe people. My sister was in a nursing home, and uh, she died there, and she she was 62. And I saw in that nursing home there was a lot of, you know, not attending to what a person really needed and saying that she didn't, you know, need more care. And she was a nurse. She knew what she needed. She had actually been a nurse, a head nurse in that particular nursing home. So when I think of all the different things, you don't have to be labeled crazy to get the full Monty on not getting care. And all you have to do is start complaining about things and and it will come back with you someday, somehow, it'll come back. I must say too, you know, it's just like with any institution, there's some absolutely wonderful people who work there, but there's also some jerks and the system is not set up to personalize. One of the one of the things that I would always hear is, oh, great, I've got the next few days off. I'm so exhausted. And it said, okay, you're exhausted because you're helping me. Do you know how that makes me feel? That there's nothing that I can give you to make anything any better? All you're doing is saying, when I'm away from you, I'm okay. There's such a distancing. And there's no connection to the outside world. If they take people out, they take them in groups. When I'd have to go to the doctors, I'd have to pay $60 for a round-trip ride to the doctor it, you know, since I have my wheelchair. You know, if, you don't, if you're not extraordinarily poor, then you have to have plenty of cash on hand if you plan to go out. So you don't go out. And then you have the hairdresser comes in, and it can be your whole, it, you just get this little spending money. And for the hairdresser to work on an elder person's hair, it's their whole month's allowance. And everything is monitored. You don't get anything you're not supposed to get. It's just they're in charge. And even if they're nice, it's totally at their will whether you get something or not. And these are also some of the lowest paid jobs in society. They're really, we've, we've really pushed, pushed our elders to the margins and then the people who care for them. We push them to the margins too, and so um, what are some of the f- the reasons why this situation has uh, gotten to such a c- catastrophic proportions? I think that socially we believe that this isn't going to happen to us, all of us that have any power in our lives today, you know. So we don't pay attention to it, and we don't push. You know, there's the consumer-directed personal assistance services. That's wonderful, where you hire your own personal care attendants. They do what you need them to do, and they do it when you need them to do it. So that's better than home care, which often would, you know, have a number of people they're dealing with, and then at 3 o'clock you go to bed because they can't get back there 
to put you in bed at a different time. So it has to be a different model where you're hiring and there is a fiduciary agency that um, takes care of the personnel issues once you've hired somebody, you know, takes care of the timesheets and the, and the uh, oh, paychecks and things like that. So you can hire somebody and you can hire somebody based on, you know, what they can do for you. And if they speak your language, it's another big issue. And if they cook food that you can eat. And why isn't this alternative being more in use um, as an alternative to the uh, nursing home system? Because there's, there's an attitude about older people that they couldn't manage their own lives, you know, and there's, but the other trick is in consumer-directed personal assistance, you can have someone else designated as what's called a self-directing other, a person who will make those decisions, you know, make sure that the time cards are right, make sure the person is meeting all their requirements. Is it just the attitude that people are helpless? It's the feeling that, well, you're old, so that's where you go. I mean, there's there's this unwritten attitude in our society. Well, if you're 75, I mean, what are you going to do, you know? Let's put them in a nursing home when they need care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are some of the um, alternatives and, and reforms that you're advocating? We've talked about a very serious um, set of problems with how our elders are treated in the United States. What are some of the solutions, do you think? I think more of the consumer-directed personal assistance services funded through Medicaid, and I think we have to have another level that a person who's, you know, got a little little put away can afford to have that service, you know, or you buy into Medicaid to cover that service. You have people of your own culture that respect who you are. So I think that's one clear way. Um, and another is that there are others waivers that the feds have offered through Medicaid that are available and hopefully we'll be able to work with some managed care companies to help people live inclusive lives in the community because I recently heard a couple of physicians presenting on they may go in and fix something that's a problem for you physically but what they may do is in the process of fixing that they may make force you to leave your home and it's the leaving your home and not having an alternative that that people get stuck with so we have to have alternatives and I know that um, there has been a movement uh, Bill Thomas is a physician who's worked on a life worth living is the name of his book and he worked on alternatives to nursing homes where they have maybe 10 people living in a home They've leveled the playing field that you don't have a nutritionist doing nutritionist, a physical therapist doing physical therapy. You have all of the staff doing all of it, you know, so that everyone is connecting and supporting people. I think 10 in the house is too many, but you could have fewer people and have some control of those people over what's going on in their environment. And then have a driver that will take people to where they choose to go. And, you know, then I think we should have other alternatives that are like what I I can dream about, the Golden Girls, you know. You can have people collectively living together where you've got privacy, but you've also got connection. And then I think transportation is another issue that we need to have more and better transportation options for people who move past being able to drive or they're not on a bus line. 
Carol, part of your work has been with um, advanced directives, both um, living wills and health advanced directives, but also psychiatric advanced directives. Tell us about that and how important that is in reforming our elder care system. I think one of the most important things for everyone listening now to do is to make sure that you develop and execute an advanced directive, a psychiatric advanced directive in particular, to be really clear about what can be helpful to you and what's not helpful to you, and also a healthcare advanced directive, you know, that can guide people into what you really want to happen and what's realistic. And explain to us what, what is that for people who don't know what a psychiatric advanced directive or a healthcare advanced directive is. It has to put down things that you feel are very helpful to you in a situation or could be helpful to you in a situation, things that are definitely not helpful. I, I put in there no shock treatments under any circumstances. Um, if I die, never give my brain to anyone to study. I need air. I need to be outside for a part of it each day. I need to not have psychotropic drugs. I, I, and I've listed the ones that I have clear damage from that, that I can, you know, cite. I can get a doctor to sign off on that. I also say what, that I need to be quiet when I'm upset. I just need to be quiet and by myself. I don't need a lot of people around me. So little things that make you feel like you're in control and make you feel like you have a right to recover from tough times and you don't have to go with what they're making you do. I don't ever want to go into a day program. I know that. I don't want to be I don't want to learn arts and crafts, never did that well at all. You know, so that there's specific things that I, I want not to have to happen or to have to feel like a jerk for saying, No, I don't want arts and crafts. You know, I want something to read. I want my computer. I want um, my cat. You know, you can put those things, and maybe they can't accommodate all of them, but they do have to try, so it's worth a try. Carol, are you hopeful for the future? Do you feel like there is some momentum for change and there is some advocacy happening for making some alternatives to the mainstream system, or, or, or how do you feel about the future for elders in the United States? I'm, I'm scared to death. Um, and as the older I get, I get more scared. But I also am hopeful because there are some of the alternatives that, like the Community Choice Act and Consumer-Directed Personal Assistance, where some states are adopting those things and are getting people out of nursing homes into more vibrant lives in the community and giving people an opportunity to live their own lives in their own way. So I guess I do feel more hopeful Otherwise, I'd have to pack it all in if I didn't. So we're facing some really big challenges, but you are also seeing some hopeful possibilities. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I'll tell this one, a friend of mine was went into a nursing home, and she said given the circumstances she was living under, she chose to be in the nursing home. And she signed in as a person who was a Catholic by background, but she started practicing her Buddhist, practices in the middle of the night down the hallways. So I, she invited me up, or the, they all invited me for her, you know, review meeting, and they said that they were going to have to give her a psychotropic, they did start giving her psychotropic drugs to put her to sleep. She told me, she just got giggling, and she just said, I'm just doing my, my Buddhist practices. And I said, well, did you tell them that? She said, no, I didn't want to tell them. 
And I said, well, why do you think you're getting those drugs? She goes, I don't want those drugs. So we went to the meeting, and I said, well, Helen is a practicing Buddhist, and uh, so would you mind honoring her spirituality and how she practices it by not drugging it out of her and allowing her to dance in the hallway as she needs to? So they, you know, they were so stunned that it was a practice, and then they realized, you know, once they looked, yeah. So I thought, you know, there's always hope, but you have to have someone watching. So if you know anybody who's there, go visit them. So your friend, they did actually stop giving her the medications to to control her and get her to sleep, and they just said, okay, this is your spiritual practice. You're you're going in the middle of the night and you're dancing, and then we're going to accept that. Mm-hmm. So the power of advocacy worked in that in that example. Well, Carol, we are just about out of time. Can you give um, listeners um, some contact information if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, my email address is chc for Carol Hayes Collier, and this is all small letters at TLS for Transitional Living Services dash Onondaga O N O N D A G A dot org. Carol Hayes Collier, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much, Will. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to an interview with Carol Hayes Collier. She's an elder and psychiatric survivor who's one of the founders of Transitional Living Services of Onondaga, New York. Uh, She was the supervisor of Syracuse's Foster Grandparents Program and is a longtime member of the Gray Panthers and advocate for elders' rights and mental health. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice with technical assistance from Jeremy Lantzman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.